0: Changes. Uh, that's true techn- technologically uh, we see this sort of whirlwind of technological uh, advances in our world it's of course true culturally as well our culture is changing its views on lots of things things like marriage and sexuality and Gender would be obvious obvious examples. Uh, It's going to be true for us personally and individually in our lives too. Even this last 12 months, uh, how many of us have got used to doing new things in uh, lots of new ways. Uh, Working from home, uh, homeschooling, not being able to see loved ones, not being able to travel, doing church, online. If you're anything like me and my household, we sort of just work uh, week to week really at the moment. And of course, here in Hong Kong, uh, this is all true politically as well. We've seen enormous political changes, almost seismic Uh, shifts uh, over the last year as well. And in the midst of all this, I think a very natural question is, well, if God exists, then uh, where is God? Uh, We know he's there somewhere, but we maybe aren't sure uh, what God is up to in the midst of everything. And what does he expect from me? Are there opportunities in all that's going on that he sort of wants us to embrace? Uh, How can I keep on believing when many of these changes feel very alarming perhaps, or or start to fill me with fear? If I'm not a Christian, well, is God relevant at all to the changing world that I inhabit? Well, I guess all those are really good questions, and they bring us nicely to the Old Testament character of Daniel. And uh, as we'll see from the reading, he was actually someone who experienced great changes over the course of his lifetime, but yet he and his friends remained faithful to God. And uh, that's a great example for us. So why don't we then uh, have the reading? So uh, I'll read... Daniel 1, I think it's the first page there in your booklets. So then let's hear God's word together. Uh, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered... Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Uh, Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So then, in this uh, first talk, we are going to look at the God who rules. The God who rules. And what I think we'll basically see is that if we have confidence in God's rule in the world, then we will be well-equipped to live faithfully for him. If you want what we're looking at in uh, one line, that would really... it if we have confidence in god's rule then we'll be equipped to live faithfully for god in a changing world so then four brief lessons for us from this chapter and the first of them is remember that god is in control and uh, i think we can see this in the first couple of verses there verse one and two Uh, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. I think it's hard for us to imagine the horror of these events for God's people Um, The year is 605 BC, and these verses are describing the events of the beginning of the Babylonian exile, and for God's people, this really was the ultimate disaster. They had always thought that God would protect them against their enemies, but now the pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had come against them, and he had won. He had come against their capital at Jerusalem and besieged it. He had captured it and had plundered it and had looted the temple of all of its treasures. The temple, of course, represented God's presence uh, right in the middle of his people. It was where God's people came to meet with him and to present sacrifices uh, that made them right with him. Uh, its worship required various gold vessels and objects. And now these were carried off, horror of horrors, and placed it in the temple of the Babylonian gods. So really this is the ultimate humiliation for God's people. It would be a little bit like taking all of the trophies from Manchester United's trophy room and placing them in somewhere like Liverpool, That's the kind of magnitude here, okay? The, The kind of idea was that if you defeated a country in the ancient world, then you defeated its gods. And so for Israel, this looked like the Babylonian gods had won and it looked like their god the god of israel the one true god had lost the worship of their god looked like it was at an end those great promises that god had made to abraham that israel would somehow be a blessing to all the nations looked like they have come to nord so this is a great disaster and as you can imagine this caused much uh, questioning and despair where is god why has god allowed this to happen what was going to happen to god's people now or if you like where is god in a changing world and really the book of daniel really sets out to answer those kinds of questions but i wonder if you noticed here there's just a little hint um, that uh, all is not lost i wonder if you noticed it it's uh, there in verse 2 where we read literally and the lord gave or thinking In the translation we have here, it's something like, and the Lord delivered. It's only a hint, but it reminds us that what happened here was not just an accident of history. It's not just because Nebuchadnezzar happened to have a really strong army and King Jehoiakim hadn't got one, and that was why he won. Instead, there's a hint here that this is the Lord's doing. God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Reminds us right at the outset that the book of Daniel is not really a book about Daniel in many ways, but actually it's a book about God. These opening verses remind us of a theme that we see again and again in in the book of Daniel, that God is in control of all that happens, the rise and fall of nations, um, and that's meant to be a comfort for us. As we've already said, it often feels like our lives are in a state of constant change, Our work lives change, there are new staff or new policies that need to be implemented. Our family lives change, our children grow up, our parents get older. Our locations change, we spend time in Hong Kong, then we spend time somewhere else. Uh, Our experiences at church also change, that favourite worship song that we had when we were growing up is one that's not sung anymore. Uh, Because of the pandemic, uh, things seem to change almost constantly. One week we can eat out in groups of four, the next it's groups of six, the next we're going to groups of four again. uh, Even in this last week, right? So most of this last week I had one child out of kindergarten, because kindergarten was shut, and I had two children at school part-time. We were then told that this coming week we were going to have our two part-time children at school full-time. Kindergarten would still be closed now it looks like as of yesterday's announcement we've got one child part-time one child full-time and one still out of kindergarten and all that transition is in the space of one week you know i'm sure you guys have experienced it too yet right at the start of the book of daniel um god wants to remind us that he is in control we'll see here he's in control of the large things in history he's also in control of the details of our lives uh, one christian author I think it's quite helpful he says these words Our fate may sometimes seem to lie in the hands of hostile people or in the outworking of impersonal forces of one kind or another. Yet the reality is that our every experience in this world, from the apparently coincidental at one end of the spectrum to the determined acts of wicked men and women at the other, lies under the control of our sovereign God. Now we may have lots of questions about that, yet the Bible is always clear that God is in absolute control of all that happens, and that's meant to be a great comfort to us as God's people. But we need to move on, and we see that there's another lesson in this passage for us, that we need to recognize the pressure to conform. So remember we saw that this pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has conquered God's people. But yet King Nebuchadnezzar is what we might call an enlightened dictator, And he knows that he can't rule his empire if he just sort of goes around oppressing everyone mercilessly. And so he adopts this policy of removing the elite from each place so that he can sort of train them and then reprogram them to work in his empire. And that's really what's going on in verses 3 and 4. The king orders this guy, Ashkenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, rather like the congregation of Shatin, Anglican Church, I would imagine. Um, qualified to serve uh, in the king's palace, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And so he really begins on this sort of policy of Babylonianization, right? Uh, These captives, they were carried far away from their home, uh, Babylon's about 500 miles to the east of Jerusalem, uh, and they were to be treated really well. They were to be educated, it says, in the language and literature of the Babylonians. Uh, they'd be retrained so they could take the, some of the top jobs in the, in the empire in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Uh, when I was at university in the UK, uh, the British government would sort of often try and sort of cream off all of the top students so that they could be trained uh, to take over leadership co- uh, roles in the country uh, later on. And I guess it's a similar kind of thing that we see here. Actually, all governments uh, often try and do this kind of thing. And then these students wouldn't have had to worry about what to eat. So while most of the students were eating instant noodles, uh, we can see from verse 5 that Daniel and his friends were to feast on steak and the finest of wines from the king's table. Uh, Their course was to last three years, after which they were guaranteed a great job for life. It's worth remembering that this was a great privilege for them, probably the other uh, Israelite captives probably thought, wow, you guys are so lucky. Whatever you do, don't blow this amazing opportunity that King Nebuchadnezzar has given to you. Uh, we also see that they were given new names as well. So uh, verse 6 and 7, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name God, to to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I'm uh, assuming that a number of you here have maybe taken on new names at uh, some point in your life, maybe uh, to make things easier for you in a sort of host culture, maybe if you were studying abroad, uh, or maybe just because you wanted to. But here there was also a religious dimension to this. The old names of Daniel and his friends all contained the name of God, uh, the one true God, the God of Israel whereas the new names that they were given all had the names of pagan gods, gods like Bel and Marduk and Nebo. So for instance, uh, Azariah means the Lord is my helper, God is my helper. His new name, Abednego, means servant of Nebo, and uh, Nebo, of course, pagan god. And really what I wanted to see there is just that these guys were under huge pressure to conform uh, to the culture around them. Uh, There's this sort of concerted program of Babylonianization by Nebuchadnezzar. It was calculated to wean them off their old life and their old identity as the people of God and onto a new life of serving uh, the king of Babylon and his gods. You can just begin to imagine how appealing this must have been. Uh, a captive and a slave um, going to eating the food and wines from the king's table, and all the pressure that must have come with that. An incredible privilege uh, that must have come with immense pressure to conform. Uh, Maybe you can imagine someone who takes you out to a really expensive restaurant every week and always pays for you. Uh, Michelin-star restaurant, uh, amazing food, Every week, every single time they pay. What happens as time goes on? Well, of course, you feel more and more obligated to them, don't you? What if they were paying for your flat and your education as well? You can begin to see the kind of obligation and the kind of pressure that these guys were under. Eventually, uh, you would probably do whatever that person wanted. It's exactly the same here. If only these captives would forget about God and would leave their faith in him behind. It reminds me a bit of that uh, famous translation of Romans 12, verse 2. In the New Testament, that reads, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. That sort of cultural pressure that we all feel. Now, where are we under the threat of being uh, squeezed into the world's mould? Well, I think we're often blind, aren't we, to some of the ways that this impacts us? It becomes so subconscious for us. Uh, because we just naturally breathe the air that everybody else breathes. And of course, one of the reasons we exist together in community as a church is because we can help one another to resist the pressure of the world um, squeezing us into its mould. Last week at Ambassador, we were thinking about the whole issue of race. And we were reminded of the fact that when Christians have most got it wrong in history with regard to race, that's because they've adopted too much uh, of the culture of the world uh, around them, they've allowed the world to uh, squeeze them into its mould and they haven't always recognised uh, the great pressure that they were under to conform. That's just one example. For us maybe, and another obvious example would be about sexual ethics, perhaps. Uh, I read a statistic a while back from the US that 63% of Christians interviewed thought that it was fine to have sex before marriage. Now, of course, their definition of Christian may be wrong, and that's the US and not Hong Kong. But we all know that we're under huge pressure in the whole area of sex and sexuality. Which of us doesn't feel under huge pressure to go with the flow and and adopt exactly the same views as the world around us with regard to sex? And that's just two examples, I'm sure you can think of lots more. Uh, We're under huge pressure to conform. And uh, that makes what we read about Daniel in the next few verses even more remarkable. So number three then, we're to resolve to stand firm. So uh, we'll see in a moment just how Daniel resolved to stand firm. But it's worth also taking a moment to look at what Daniel does not do here. And so... Daniel does not refuse everything that the king gives him. He does not refuse the king's education, to be educated in the literature and language of the Babylonians. He doesn't refuse to work for the king's government, even although it was oppressive and pagan. He doesn't even refuse his new name, which might that the one thing that we would really expect him to refuse as it would have uh, contained the name of uh, a, a pagan god. I think there's a reminder here for us as Christians that we're not just to sort of retreat wholesale from the world in which we live. We're meant to engage with the world and live in in the world and engage where we are. But then we also see that Daniel resolves to stand firm and to draw a line in the sand. And this, I guess, brings us to what's probably the key verse, verse 8. He has already quoted it. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way so daniel resolves what does it mean to resolve well it means he makes a clear decision in his heart and determines to follow through on it in his actions okay he makes a clear decision in his heart and he determines to follow through on it in his actions that he will not eat the food and wine from the king's table Now, the obvious question is, well, why does he choose this particular stand? Why draw the line here with the king's food and wine and not draw it somewhere else uh, with regard to, say, the king's name or the king's education? Well, the answer is, we're not really sure. Uh, We know it can't have been because the food was unclean, according to Jewish food laws, because Daniel also refuses the wine, uh, which there wasn't a problem with, uh, according to the Old Testament food laws. Uh, We know it can't have being because the food was offered to idols either, because all of the food would have been offered to idols, including the vegetables which uh, Daniel eats, and so that can't be the reason. And so we don't really know. It's possible that eating the food carried sort of connotations, of sort of close fellowship, uh, maybe, or obligation, and that was why Daniel refused it, but we aren't really told. However, there was obviously some reason here, and there was something going on that made Daniel draw this particular line. He was saying, I'm willing to go this far with the pagan culture, but no no further. I'm not going to defile myself by going any further than this. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it obviously means that we do need to draw a line over those things that are clear from God's word. I hope that that's obvious. So if we're in a context where people are lying or stealing or gossiping or being racist or anything else uh, that's clear from god's word then we can't as christians go along with that and I, i hope that many of you are already doing that in your lives with god's help but i actually think the main application here is really that there's also other lines that we need to draw in our lives that are a matter of wisdom where we're not really talking about things that are right and wrong but we are talking about things that please the lord We're talking about things that are maybe a matter of conscience, uh, lines that we need to draw out of loyalty to Christ for our own spiritual good, maybe the spiritual good of other people, that uh, maybe aren't clear, but yet they are lines that we need to draw in the culture around us, where where we need to say, well, we'll go this far with the culture around us, but we're not going to defile ourselves by going any further. Uh, there are issues where we maybe draw the line personally uh, because of our conscience, but we're not saying they are binding on all Christians. And you'll need to think and pray about those kind of lines and where they are in your life, as uh, I will with mine. However, I think a couple of examples uh, are maybe helpful. Uh, one that some of you may have come across would be somebody like Eric Liddell. So uh, those of you who have seen the film Chariots of Fire might remember this is about an athlete who refused to run on a... Sunday in the 1924 Paris Olympics and if you've seen the film you remember that he ran on on a different day in a different race instead and ended up winning. In his context, not running on a Sunday was a stand that he felt he he needed to make in order to honour God and not compromise or defile himself with the culture around him. Another example might be the Christian university student who chooses not to drink alcohol while they are at uni. Uh, They know that the drinking culture is huge on campus, and so they decide not to drink as a Christian for the time they were a student uh, because they want to honour Christ and really draw a clear line uh, of witness in the sand for him. They're not saying that everybody out there needs to take this stance. It's not a matter of right or wrong, but it is a matter of wisdom. They believe it's right for them at this particular time in their Christian lives. Or maybe the Hong Kong parent who draws a line at how many after-school clubs Their children will go to immense cultural pressure to go to lots and lots of after-school clubs. But they want to draw a line and say, well, yes, education is important. But as Christians, we know that education is not the most important thing in in the world. And we want to make sure that this doesn't become something uh, that's becoming all-consuming for us. And so can you begin to see what kinds of issues we are talking about here? Not issues of right and wrong, but rather wisdom issues. Issues where we need to draw a line in the sand for our own spiritual good, maybe the spiritual good of those around us, or to honour Christ. Where We will say, well, we'll go this far with our culture, but we won't define ourselves by going any further. I wonder, are there any lines at all that you can think of that are like that in your life at the moment? Any lines at all where you've decided as an individual Christian, maybe as a family, to draw a line like Daniel does here? Maybe this week we could think about taking one small step and drawing a line somewhere in the the sand where we're choosing to go so far with the culture but yet not define ourselves by going further. Maybe just letting somebody at work know that you are a Christian. That's a small step, but yet shows that you are standing out as being unique because of one of Christ's people in, in the world Uh, i listened to one person share recently how they were starting a phd and one of the first things that they did was let their phd supervisor know that they were a christian they were worried that they would be sorely tempted to seek the approval constantly of their phd supervisor and so they wanted to say right at this start i'm a christian they wanted to draw a line in the sun and say well we'll go this far with the culture but uh, we're not going to define ourselves uh, by going further this is especially important if you are young because when you are young, you are setting the habits of a lifetime. As far as we know, at this point in his life, Daniel would have been in his mid-teens. Okay? When Daniel did this, from all the evidence that we have, he would have been in his mid-teens where he took this amazing stand. The pressure must have been immense the people around him saying lighten up what's the big deal with the king's food there'll be plenty of time to take big stands like that when you're older why don't you spend your time establishing your career first and take a stand like this later on yet daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food Uh, one final thing we need to say here briefly before we move on is that notice that daniel takes his stand with humility and respect uh, so verse 9, uh, Daniel sort of very politely asks the main official in charge of the young men for permission not to eat the king's food. He refuses because he's worried about getting his head locked off. Uh, Daniel then doesn't give up but goes very politely to the next man down, and he makes a deal with him instead. Uh, so verse 12 and 13, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so the guard agrees. Daniel and his friends eat the vegetables and water for 10 days while everyone else gets the royal food. I hope you can see something of Daniel's respect and grace and politeness and tact, almost wisdom, I guess, as he approaches these different officials. Uh, He's brave, but he's also respectful and gracious in how he takes a stand. Uh, there's no point in taking the right stand, but in an obnoxious way. Okay, No point in drawing that line with the culture, but in doing so in an obnoxious way. You need to take the right stand in the right way. Uh, one author, a guy called Sinclair Ferguson, Daniel, shows that our faithfulness is seen not only in our determination to stand firm, but also in the way that we stand firm and in the spirit in which we do so. So it's not just the stand that we take that's important, it's how we actually take that stand uh, as Christians. Very easy to take the right stand in the wrong way, but Daniel's an example of someone who takes the right stand in the right way with an attitude of humility um, and respect that honours God. Uh, Last point then, more briefly, reward. God honours those who honour him. So let's see how things worked out for Daniel and his friends. So first of all, we see that he found favour in the eyes of God. This experiment paid off, and at the end of his ten days, uh, Daniel and his friends were looking healthier than the other young men. So in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. We'll see that's teeing us up for something very important in, in the next chapter. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And then we also see that Daniel found favour in the eyes of men. So in verse 18, at the end of the three years, they were presented to King Nebuchadnezzar for him to examine them. Uh, Incidentally, if any of you ever think your exams are really hard, imagine what it would have been like to have been personally examined in an oral examination by King Nebuchadnezzar who quite literally had the power of life and death. That would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? Yet we read that he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and so they entered the king's service. In every matter, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, which was the end of the exile, almost 70 years later. Now, of course, we know that there's no guarantee that things will work out well in this present life for those who honour God. And there's plenty of examples, even in the Bible, of those who put God first, and yet they're persecuted for it. But sometimes God will grant his people favour in the eyes of men. Uh, I remember reading a prayer letter a number of years ago, from, which contained the story of a Christian lawyer in the African country of Guinea-Bissau. And apparently this man was asked to help draw up a law by the government that would have ended up limiting Christian freedoms. Uh, He arranged to see the president, and uh, he said that he couldn't possibly fulfill this request as a Christian. And the president was apparently so impressed with the Christian's humility and integrity that he scrapped the proposed law and promoted the lawyer to being head of a government department. And uh, those things won't always happen. That's a pretty remarkable example. But it shows that sometimes God will bless the stands that his people take. We're not guaranteed that that will happen every time. Yet we can always be sure that God honours those who honour him. If we put Christ first, we will never ever have cause to ultimately regret that. So then, let's uh, wrap things up in terms of conclusion. So uh, where is God in a changing world? What have we seen from this passage? Well, I think we've seen, first of all, that God rules It's true that outwardly, in this passage, it looks like the Babylonian gods have won and that the one true God is defeated and on his way out. But if we are God's people, then we know that appearances are very often always deceptive. And so there's little hints here. We see that it was God who delivered Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, verse 2. We see it was God who caused the official to show favour to Daniel, Verse 9, and it was God who gave to Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding. Verse 17, we may feel God is absent, but yet God is still at work through his people. And that's true in our world as well, even in a pagan land. Kingdoms may rise and fall, but yet God is still at work, even in quiet and maybe often imperceptible ways. God's kingdom endures forever. Then we also see that Daniel is an example for us. It's hard to imagine the fear that a dictator, despotic ruler like Nebuchadnezzar must have instilled in somebody like Daniel. Um, yet Daniel, I think, knew that there was a greater king in the universe than King Nebuchadnezzar and that his priority was to live for him and honor him. And I actually think that's probably the secret of the stand that he, he took. If we are Christians, you see, We can be confident in God because we know who the real king in the universe is. We know that Jesus is the risen and ascended Lord and he is the one who is seated on the throne and it's worth living faithfully for him. And so Daniel is a good example for us of how to do that well. We're called on to engage with the world, but yet we also need to be careful to draw lines out of our loyalty to Christ. We've been bought by his blood, we belong to him, we are his people. Uh, We're to honor him with our lives, and he will help us to take a stand for him by the power of his Holy Spirit. And of course, if we know him, we can be assured that one day we will be with him forever and ever, and he will reward us as his good and faithful servants. So I think this passage gives us great confidence. It helps us to take a courageous stand for God, even in a changing world, because we know that ultimately God rules over all He is the king who's on the throne, and he is the one who is worth living for. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do want to give thanks to you for your word to us this morning. We give thanks for this reminder that we so often need that you are the one who is in control. We pray that that truth might sink in deeply to our lives today. We give thanks too for this uh, example of your servant, Daniel. Uh, We pray that you would forgive us for those times when we don't stand out as your people and that you would help us to draw lines in our lives that really help us to honour and glorify you in everything. We pray that you would uh, help us with this. We pray that you would be with us in our discussions now. And uh, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.